Hi, I'm Dr. Avanti Kumar Singh. In over 20 years of practicing both Western medicine and Eastern healing traditions, the most important thing that I've learned is that healing is a journey we take together. So on this podcast, I'll be demystifying Ayurveda and other integrated medicine, showing how these simple ancient practices are the keys to unlocking a healthy modern life. We are all healing catalysts because healing starts within. It starts with you and it starts right now. This is a Soulfire production. Episode number 87. My beautiful friends, welcome back to the Healing Catalyst podcast. And so here we are. May is here and it feels like a change in seasons, but not exactly. And yet summer feels like it's almost here, but not exactly. I don't know about you, but I love this time of year when the air is crisp and fresh and the flowers and the trees start to bloom. The days get a little longer and everyone starts to settle into a little bit of a slower pace. There are celebrations for graduations and reunions and weddings, and the anticipation of summer travel and fun, whether to the beach or the lake or to a new city or country. I'm actually heading out to California later this week for my daughter Isha's college graduation, and then I get back and it's my 30th college reunion from the University of Chicago. So many fun things going on. I'm so looking forward to it. And as you know, a new month around here means a new intention. And so during May, which is also Mental Health Awareness Month, our intention is emotions and our health. We'll be looking at all the ways that emotions affect our health and how our health affects our emotions. To get the conversation started, today I'm joined again by my friend, Dr. Thanmeet Sethi, an integrative and psychedelic medicine physician, activist, author, and speaker who has dedicated her career to care for the most marginalized patients in Seattle's refugee, uninsured, and homeless populations, as well as global communities traumatized by man-made and natural disasters. In her clinical practice, she weaves modern and ancient medicine to catalyze the most profound healing from within. Dr. Sethi has spent the first 25 years of her practice as core faculty in residency medical education, focusing on inpatient and outpatient family medicine, integrative medicine, and anti-racism in medicine. She's a primary researcher on a University of Washington study on psilocybin for COVID burnout of frontline medical workers. Dr. Sethi's TEDx talk, Two Words That Can Change Your Life, is perhaps one of the most profound TED Talks I've heard. And her first book, Joy Is My Justice, Reclaim Yours Now, was just released last week. In our conversation, Thanmeet and I explore the transformation of suffering into joy and how reclaiming our story can lead to healing. We discuss the differences between suffering and pain, why we experience resistance, and the power of sitting with deep pain to move through it toward joy. Dr. Thanmeet also unpacks the science behind how toxic positivity heightens our stress response and its role in suppressing true emotions. You'll learn exercises for identifying and labeling emotions, as well as techniques for bringing more ease and joy into the body. You know, I've known Thanmeet since I was in medical school, and she is not only one of my closest friends, but someone I consider a mentor and a soul sister. Her work is so, so profound. And as I read her book again last week for the second time, I was in tears because the depth of her experience comes through so beautifully through her rich stories of not just the patients 
that she's helped heal over three decades as a physician, but also through her personal stories that she shares so vulnerably so that all of us can learn and heal as well. I am so honored to share with you my beautiful heart-to-heart conversation with Dr. Thanmeet Sethi about transforming suffering into joy as we explore emotions and our health. Well, hello, Thanmeet, my dear. I am so, so excited about this episode, about talking to you because you have been laboring over this beautiful book for so long. And I'm excited because I was a little bit part of that journey and talking to you along the way. So it's just so wonderful to see this book, to have it in my hands and really talk about your work. So thank you so much for being here with me. Mm, Avanti, I'm so honored to be here. This book, I would say you weren't just a small part, you were a big part. And to be here with you talking about it feels like such a gift. Well, I'm going to start crying and we haven't even started talking yet, but thank you. I know. So, you know, the title of your book is so interesting. Joy is my justice. And I really want to, to dive into that because I feel like at first, that's a hard concept to understand. Even for me, even knowing what you were writing about, like when you told me what the, t- the final title was, I was like, I really had to think about it. Um, and so let's start with just maybe first, the question to start with is, you know, why did you decide to write this book than me for the listener so that they can kind of understand where this is coming from? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny that we're talking about why joy and why justice, because when I started writing this book, it really started as almost like I couldn't stop writing in my journal. I was writing and writing and writing. And I thought, oh, this is a book. And then I thought it's a book about suffering, all of the suffering that I had learned to walk through and learn to walk my patients through and my group participants through with trauma. And the more I wrote, I realized, oh, this is not a book about suffering. It's a book about joy and how suffering transmutes to joy when we know how to do that. So that's really how it started. The title, Joy is My Justice, now that you're asking, I'm realizing that there's a story in the book that will explain it best is that I had a moment where I was actually, I explained this in the book, so I won't go into great detail, but I was doing a body scan imagery in a little different way. And in this way, I had gone to my skin and traveled up and down my brown skin. And it was one of the first times in my adult life that I had an imagery around my skin color and my skin and just all that lives there with the racism and the hurt and the pain, where I felt joy and pride and love for this brown skin that it held me and housed me. And I came out of this imagery instantly, opened my eyes and said, oh, joy is my justice. And that's where the title came from. And I realized, oh, all these decades of pain in my body and to have joy and love transmuted from that in this moment, I realized my justice was internal. It was my ability to reclaim my joy when there had been so much pain. Wow. Okay. So, so much to unpack there, but I'm not going to go there right now because (laughs) because otherwise, because I don't want to skip over. So let's back up a little bit and let's talk about what you mean by joy. Let's break down the title because I think the words are so, I know they're so intentional on your part, 
very intentional. I mean, having read very. the book. And so let's start with talking about like what does joy actually mean in the way that you're using it, in the way that you're writing about it? Yeah. So this is a really important concept. I'm glad you're walking us back there. Joy is very different than happiness. And I think they get intermingled in our speak and our vernacular in the wellness world, et cetera. So happiness is, a, in my view and my writing, how I see it is happiness is a cognitive construct. It's an evaluative experience attached to outcome. It's pleasant and beautiful. Don't get me wrong. But it is what it is. It's attached to how things are going and how things are working out. And it is binary. We're either happy or another emotion at any given time. Joy, on the other hand, is a deep embodied experience. It lives right next to pain in the same deep well as our pain. It comes from our capacity for love and meaning. It comes from and is transmuted from often from that same pain. Happiness is a very different experience. Joy is not what I would call a destination or something to attain. It's actually a way to hold all the pain, a way to hold the questions that we're asking about our life, about why we feel disconnected, why we feel lost. And maybe most importantly, joy allows us to never negate the other emotions. We can feel joy in the same breath and continuum as anger, fear, rage, and sadness. It's the reason you can be at a funeral for a dear lost loved one, have the heaviest heart, and laugh with your family about the way that person used to make you feel or, or crack you up. And you can be laughing and crying at the same time. You know that feeling? Because that memory of that person is bringing so much joy and it comes from the same reason and depth that you miss them so much now here today. Yeah. And so what you're saying, that that last part really, really resonates with me because it's almost the, you know, the holding of the and, you know, it's two things, you know, this and that. It's not this or that, which is what I'm thinking. That's what's coming up for me because you know, so much. And as we, you know, talk about mental health and, you know, it is mental health awareness month when this will get released, this episode. And there's so much talk about emotions, feeling your emotions. And I, and I do think a lot of people end up in this place of thinking that they always have to be in this quote, happy, positive place um, in order to have a fulfilled life in some way. And that there's not this room to hold both to have the and, you know, the sadness and the happiness or the joy, as you would say. Yes. And um, I don't know if you want me to go to justice first, but what you're bringing up is really necessary to unpack as well, but we can go there after. Yeah, no, no, no. We can, we can totally, you know, go right into justice because that was going to be my next question is that, you know, what do you mean by justice, and even let's take it further, that joy is your justice, our personal justice. Like, let's unpack that a little bit. Yeah. So the truth is that anytime any of us have any suffering, whether it be trauma from the past or suffering in the present, whether it be oppressive systems that are holding us back or breaking us down, or whether it's something unchangeable in our life that we cannot feel free from, a job, a relationship, whatever it is. 
anytime we feel that, our body does its best to protect us. Our nervous system tells us we're not safe. This is a threat. It puts us on alert, in high alert mode. And our nervous system moves us to, as people know, fight, flee, or freeze. When I talk about justice, what I'm saying is that it's time to reclaim that safety and ease in our bodies. It's time to feel free again in our bodies. And my justice and the reader's justice can be that we finally feel some moments of ease and liberation where the truest justice has always lived, which is inside us, not outside us in this broken world. Mm -hmm. So that makes sense, the justice piece. But then how do you get to joy as your justice or each of our justice? Like why joy specifically? Let's unpack that because I I think that's an important concept. Obviously, that's the title of your book, but why joy? Yeah. So the reason joy is because I also want to take one little step back and, and explain to listeners that when I when we talk about joy, joy is far more encompassing than people understand. But what I will say first is that every moment of suffering strips us of our capacity for joy. It by definition, cultivates our sadness, our anger, our resentment, our frustration, our fear, all necessary, all beautiful. But where is the joy? Because the joy is actually such a wide container that it holds all of that and still reminds us that we are human and we deserve to be here. We deserve to exist and thrive and hold the widest range of our story that is possible. The potential of our story is so limited by our suffering. We become, whether it's that we're marginalized in society, whether it's that our suffering or our medical condition strips us down to a diagnosis, whether it's that, in my case, that my child is suffering from an incurable disease, so now am I just a mother who grieves? Whether whatever our suffering is, the joy has been stripped from us, and that is how our humanity is stripped away. And so bringing back joy and saying, you cannot take away my joy. I not only stand here, but I thrive in my joy means that we are reclaiming our story and creating it to be bigger than the one that you try to give us in terms of the suffering or the system that we're talking to. When we understand that joy is internal and a deeply embodied human right, we realize that nobody can take it away, nobody can strip it, and we have the capacity to have it. And not only do we have the capacity, but our pain when transmuted into love and meaning and hope actually creates a far greater and bigger joy than we were even able to before. Hmm. Yeah. And so I can, so what's coming up for me is the idea that joy actually contains everything else, if I'm understanding correctly, like your suffering is actually contained in the joy. Yes. So I'll, I'll make it practical for people. It means that if I am deeply sad, but which by the way happens on a daily basis, if I am deeply sad about something happening with my son that is unchangeable, that is only getting worse, that is only getting harder, I can be deeply sad and in that same moment feel grateful that I am so aware and human and 
of the capacity of all my feelings that I am grateful to be here feeling this. And that means that nobody has won. I have won. And so there is a way that my joy allows me to not only hold my suffering with more ease, but acknowledge that it's only a part of me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that it's not all of me. Yeah. And, you know, so when I was reading the first part of your book where you actually go in a little into these terms, you know, about what is joy, what is justice, what is liberation, I kept thinking about, you know, my own diagnosis that I've had in the past eight weeks that you have been holding my hand through also this cancer diagnosis and the feelings of deep suffering that I've had grief, anger, fear. Uh, And at the same time, being able to laugh and be like, really? Like, you know, laugh in the sense of like, this is like, it's almost like silly in a way that like, oh, of course this would happen. Or it's not even not even to make light of it, but I think also, but then also to have this ability to go to the joy in my life and perhaps take the time to really connect with that in some way. So there's so many thoughts going through my mind. I'm probably not even being very clear about it, but uh, I did understand at a very deep sort of internal level. And this is where I had to sort of suspend my intellect to really understand what you were talking about. Maybe that's what I'm getting at is that when you first read the the title, Joy is My Justice, it's a hard concept to understand maybe intellectually, but it's when you start to connect with the words of what you're writing, that was where so much came up for me because I could feel it so deeply within me, what you were writing, and it connected to some deeper part of me this deep understanding and knowing that what you're saying, what you're writing is true, that the suffering is a part of the joy, that joy can be a container for all of the emotions and that our individual liberation comes from understanding that all of the emotions are part of what makes us human. Yeah. And You know, I'm just taking a breath to acknowledge how sacred this is, that we're speaking of what you're going through in this very moment. And I will just say that I think if listeners haven't heard your previous two previous podcast episodes ago, which you can link to, I think everyone should listen to it because what I am saying is actually completely exemplified here. Avanti, when you did that episode, what you did was you brought your raw, authentic self to that episode. You expressed the anger, the deep rage, the fear, the sadness. And what I saw happening, even on a minor scale on my side, because I'm not you receiving all the comments, but I saw some of these comments and these reactions. And what people were responding to was, how much it touched them, how much it opened their heart, how much it inspired them to feel what they need to feel. And what I saw coming back from you was joy and love and gratitude that the connection between you and everyone commenting was so deeply fostered in that moment. I want people to understand that that sacred reciprocal exchange was what I'm speaking of, is that joy comes from this deep acknowledging of what we are living and also what we can assign as our meaning and love to what we're living Mm -hmm. in that moment. Mm -hmm. And you exemplify that in that very example. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Thank you. I think we actually may have been texting about this a few weeks ago when I released that episode, because there was something about this concept of liberation that now as we're talking, I'm, it's coming up for me is, you know, you mentioned in the book that, you know, our liberation is connected, right? That all of us, my liberation is connected to yours, is connected to every human being, every soul on this planet. And that what I was experiencing when I released that podcast episode, when I sort of shared that, you know, I had this diagnosis is that I didn't just feel all of the love that was coming to me, that was being showered upon me. Of course, I felt that very deeply. But there was something even more profound about what I felt, which was there was this sense of community, um, of the connection between all these people on, you know, whether it's my family and friends WhatsApp group or, you know, on Instagram or, you know, messages coming from the podcast is that there was this almost ability for people to open their hearts up to each other, even though they may have not been actually communicating with each other, but just being in that group, I felt so much love between the people, right? And so that collective liberation, it's almost like the vulnerability that I allowed myself to feel and be in was an invitation for this connection and this like collective liberation. That's kind of what I was feeling. And I'm now putting words to it as we're talking. And so I, I guess that's an example of me really understanding what you're saying of, you know, our liberation is connected to every other human being and that it has to start with us, right? We each have to start that individually in our own bodies. Wow. <laughs> I have to take yeah. a breath after that. Exactly, exactly. And I think you exemplified another really important piece of joy, which is it is not a contrived platitude. It, it by definition, actually deeply holds all that we are feeling. And that is why when you did that, everyone was able to feel what they were feeling. It's not that we want to say, oh, you just should feel okay. Are you happy now? Are you feeling good? Everything's good, right? We actually want to know how you're feeling because then we're having a truer, deeper connection. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that actually goes to concept that you talked about in, I think it's like chapter, chapter two about toxic positivity and why it's harmful. Like, let's, let's talk about that because, you know, a lot of people might be listening and rightfully so sort of thinking, well, okay, that's really great. And you can be like, maybe trying, like thinking that this is like toxic positivity of, but let's talk about what that actually is. Yeah. So this is an important thing because actually it's very hard for us in this society to feel what we're feeling when everyone's trying to make us happy, right? And I talk about it because I'll get to the neuroscience in a second, which is really important in this concept. But when I, and you may have experienced this in the last eight weeks at times, but when I first got the diagnosis for my son Zubin, I got a lot of toxic positivity, people saying, at least you have X, Y, or Z. At least you have this. You're spiritually strong enough to manage this. You're, you know, all comes from a place of love. I really mean that. But it's misguided because what it was is was people's inability to sit in my deep, deep pain. And it is very hard for any of us to sit in deep pain, whether it's ours or someone else's, because our body wants to protect us. It wants us to run away and flee. 
or fight. And when people give us toxic positivity statements or try to cloud what we're really feeling, there's actually a way that it actually even further heightens our amygdala, our threat center in the deep recesses of our brain. Because now, while we're feeling angry or sad and are being told not to, we are made to feel invisible and that anger is heightening our stress system even more. And so it is incredibly harmful for us to you know, spread toxic positivity. And also it's incredibly important for us to understand we're doing it just because we, our bodies and our minds love ourselves and want to protect us. None of us are doing it because we want to make someone feel bad. We're doing it because none of us want pain. But the truth is, it wasn't until some time into my journey where I realized I need to sit in this shit. I cannot have everyone try to erase it. And so if you're not willing to sit with me in deep pain or anger or fear, then just allow me space to feel it is how I came to understand. And so I want people to understand that that kind of toxic positivity is actually harmful to our health. It's heightening our stress system even more. Right. So it's not even, it's not only hurting the person that you're trying to be positive with, but it's actually harming you as well because it's raising your stress response. But here's a question that comes up for me is that, well, then what's the difference between this type of positivity and words of encouragement to somebody, right? Because I will tell you in the last eight weeks, I've been on the receiving end and I am so grateful to everyone, you know, saying, you can do this, you can do this, you're going to be okay. You know, you're going to, all the words of encouragement, right? But there have been points when I'm like, yeah, it's really easy for you to say that. Or, you yeah. know, feeling like, oh my God, you know, and, and it's not that I'm not grateful for all of that, those the, the beautiful words of encouragement, but it's almost like, where's the line? Yeah. Well, okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a leap of faith here and I'm going to challenge you on something. Yeah. I don't think there's a line per se. What I think is that it's more of an and. So I'm going to give a metaphor that just came to me. <laughs> it's not in the book. But when people are running marathons and they're in the physical pain of that 25th mile or 26th mile and they're ready to give up, or the 20th mile is more like it, and ready to give up, the cheering fans keep them going. Everyone says that. Yeah, right? I sure. don't run marathons. I never will. But those cheering fans uh, <laughs> are a big deal, right? Mm -hmm. they, mm -hmm. they keep you going. Those are your friends saying, you can do this. I'm here with you. You, can, you need them. Sure, for sure. But it's an and. You also need people, they don't have to be necessarily the same people, but you need some people who say, you can do this, but God damn it, I'm here when it just feels like crap. Or you can do this, but gosh, doing this must be so hard sometimes. I also want to give you grace for days where you are doing it, but doing it feels like you can't do it anymore. Yeah. Does that yeah, resonate. no, that, that totally resonates. And so it's, yeah, it's an and. Again, we come back to that and piece of, you know, it's not, it's not the, the negative or the positive emotions when we're talking about joy. It's the and, right? And so we're back at that and again. Because I do think that in this Western culture, this Western world of wellness that we are in, there is so much that is a binary, right? You actually spoke about this in your prologue, which really struck me. Uh, because I talk about this a lot on a lot of my episodes, this, you know, sort of Western wellness culture that we're in, 
you know, that will say that it's all about self-empowerment and, you know, putting power back into someone's hands. But it's almost like this backhanded statement of which you write in the book, you do not feel good. It's because you're not good enough at getting better. Right. And so that's something that is really comes up for me too, because I feel like what you're saying in this book is that you don't need anybody else to have this joy to feel, to claim this justice and this liberation because it's within you already. And it's not about what's going on outside of you, of what's going on outside of you. It's not about getting better according to some outside measure, but it's about claiming it with inside of you. Yeah. And what you're saying is a very key difference is that it is about all the tools of the book are actually will help you step lightly into your body to modulate that heightened nervous system and actually in a deeply embodied way, reclaim that joy. What I think is oppressive about our wellness system and world is that it's all about changing your thoughts always. Like as if you can think yourself out of poverty, oppression, addiction, and suffering. I actually disagree. I think that you, we need to reclaim that in our bodies and our bodies actually reinterpret and translate our life to us. Your saying is actually really interesting because it's actually kind of coming at it from a reverse perspective. Many times in this wellness world, we'll talk about, you know, going from thoughts and beliefs down and then, you know, going from that subtle piece down to the more gross piece, which is your, your physical body. But you're actually talking about going the opposite way in some ways. That's true. Right. That's true. Of, of starting in your body, reclaiming it in your body and then going to the subtle, which I think is so interesting because that's not a very popular perspective sometimes. Yeah. Even though, as you know, as we both know, MD physicians, we know that the science is that there is more information going from our body to our brain through our nervous system, far more actually, than goes from our brain to our body. It is scientifically proven the body translates our life. So imagine if your body is continually constricted, continually restricted in trauma, pain, fear, sadness, without the understanding that that can be transmuted and held by joy into meaning, love, hope, and awe, then how can we feel better? And so it comes back to that idea that trauma is stored in the body, right? That emotions are held in the body and then they, they, they show up as symptoms, right? As the pain, as, as the discomfort, whatever it is. And so I know that, you know, the rest of your book, basically in every chapter you go through different, I mean, you have beautiful stories from your own life and from the thousands of patients that you have taken care of over almost three decades of working as a physician. And you, you go through different types of exercises, different things that we can do to start to reclaim this joy and this liberation. Can you give us an example? And like, maybe let's, let's share something with listeners that could be one or two things that they could do to start this process to really make sort of the esoteric that we've been talking about a little more, you know, material and sort of actionable for them? Yeah. There's so many exercises. So 
before I even give one, I do want to just say that the reason they're important, what you were just saying is that trauma does live in our body. But what I always tell patients and myself is that trauma lives in the body, but that's also where it heals. So let's not forget that last part because it it is far bigger story than the first one alone. So there are many ways. I will give I will give some really simple practical ways so that that people could try it tomorrow or today. I'm thinking about since we were talking about to- toxic positivity, I'm actually thinking about a very simple technique called emotion labeling that came out of Matthew Lieberman's work and what he really studied was how through fMRI, I mean this is a deep science, okay, that simply labeling our emotions can be one way to dampen that threat center, that amygdala and get more ease into our body, more relaxation from our vagus nerve and our nervous system and allow our body to ease a bit. Now, what I find so powerful about that is that it's alongside the necessary and deep work of therapy. This is a simple thing that we can be doing every day, right? So really what it means is just labeling. And I get, I think I give this example in the book as well, but I do this often. I remember. I just did this again because my son has eight hour days at Children's Hospital where we get lots of news and none of it's good. And we just had another one of those days. And literally, we feel like we got rolled over by a truck at the end. And I, and I mean that, like our bodies feel completely just almost destroyed. And there was a moment where the cardiologist said, was talking about his heart failure, which is part of his disease as we come closer to the end. And how his heart was failing and he was sort of going on into details. And, you know, I know I understand that <laughs> he has to tell us that. But I was feeling such heaviness in my heart, such sadness and also such fear, honestly, for my son who was sitting here listening to this. And what was that doing for him? It was he feeling nurtured or tended to at all in this moment. And I remember saying, after he was done giving us lots of science and news, I remember saying, that news makes me so sad. So I was just acknowledging, honoring it. And then I said, but I know that his heart has never failed him or me. And I meant that in the spiritual metaphorical sense. But what that did for me was allowed me to say I'm sad without saying, no, it's okay, but I'm grateful that he's here. And and I was allowed to acknowledge it. But then I also I also added my sense of hope that there must be a bigger story to this. But it doesn't even have to be that involved, Avanti. It can be walking through your workday and noticing in your body anger and just touching it that way by labeling it coming back if you'd like to take a breath or just keep walking. It's not to take care of it, process it, but just to see it, acknowledge it. And there's two things that happen. One is, as Matthew Lieberman showed, we dampen that threat center. We get more clear in our frontal cortex. Our vagus nerve gets stimulated. We feel a little more ease in our body. But I will tell you on a metaphorical sense, I also think what happens is that anger now is a little bit less powerful. It's not a solid block of anger. It's something that I'm with instead of something I'm under. Yeah. And, you, and you've named it and you've identified it and you've, you've called it into the light, right? That's the image that's coming to me. It's like, you know, in that moment, in this, in this beautiful story you just shared with us, you could have taken that sadness and just pushed it down and sort of almost pushed it into the darkness, right? And then that's where it gets stored 
in your body because it's got to go somewhere, right? But by speaking it, by labeling it, by acknowledging it, by saying, I see you, sadness, you're bringing it into the light and allowing that light to transmute it in some way. Exactly. Yeah. So I love that the neuroscience now is there to show us how our body is doing that. But I love the way you explain that. I do think that that's powerful. And I think, you know, as a woman, I think about this as almost akin to how if, you know, I'm always looking for people following me at night or whatever. I'm always on prowl. I grew up in a very dangerous neighborhood and I am hypervigilant in that way. My nervous system needs a lot of tending to. And I think about always how I was taught if someone's following you, look them in the eye and then walk on so they know you've seen them. And, you know, whether that works or not, I'm not sure. But It's a little bit like that. I look my emotions in the eye and I say, you're not fully overpowering me. I know you're here. I'm not hiding from you. I'm not running from you. I'm just taking care of myself and I see you. Yeah, no, that's a powerful, powerful exercise. And you know, the one thing that will come up because I've actually done this kind of exercise with students and patients before as well, is a lot of people will say, well, like, I don't know how to name the emotion. This is so interesting, right? And, and just from a clinical perspective is that so many of us have grown up pushing these emotions down that we don't even know how to name them. We don't even know how to name fear or sadness or happiness or joy. Like those are simple ones, but you know, when it gets a little nuanced, shame, guilt, whatever, we don't know how to even name them. And so for many people, and many of you who may be listening, you might be thinking, well, I don't even know how I'm going to name it, right? So wh- what do you do there? But that's the beauty. I think you're touching on the beauty of it, which is that this is a practice. And the more we step, that's how we're stepping lightly and lovingly into our body over and over through the day. Because if I'm trying to name it, even if I can't name it, I've practiced naming it. And now Next time, maybe I feel that constriction that in my throat, maybe I'll recognize it as that fear or that guilt because it's now a pattern that I'm coming to be aware of. So yes, it's a meditative practice and we try it over and over. And I, and I always, I'm with you. I always tell my patients, that's why they call this a practice. <laughs> you know, you practice it. <laughs> but you're right. So that's, that's one way that we understand that if we keep doing it, you know, it's only from doing it over and over that I know what that twinge in my lower abdomen is. I know what that constriction in my throat is. You know, it's sort of this way that you just have to practice over and over. And by combining it with other exercises, that also helps. But it's just a matter of time and attention. Right. And, and you know, the other thing that I often say to people is that even if you use a word like overwhelmed, and you feel like it's not specific enough, that's okay. Just keep practicing, as you said, Thinmi. Keep practicing because you'll start to distill it. And again, you're bringing it into the light again, right? You're acknowledging it. Whatever emotion it is, even if you're not sure how to name it, just name it for yourself. There's no right or wrong here. <laughs> there's nobody, yeah, exactly. there's no emotions police who's like, you know, telling you if you're naming it correctly. Name it for yourself and what it means, and you'll be able to refine it over time. This is a beautiful practice. What you're saying is so important because what I talk about in the book is like, I think people just need to understand that you're not broken, that this practice is the deep, fierce work of being human. 
in a very broken, hard world. And over and over, if people can have grace and compassion for that, for themselves, there is so much deep work and reclaiming of joy that happens just in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because again, what you're doing is going back to what we were talking about before, is that if joy is a container for all of these emotions, you're actually naming those emotions and, and reclaiming the joy because you're naming them, right? So it's, it's all, all connected in this beautiful way. So what's another practice do you think that would be really helpful to all of us as we start to sort of reclaim our joy? So um, there are so many, and I'm thinking maybe we'll keep to the simpler ones so that people can really work on those and then move on as they get through the book. Yeah. So when I say simple, I mean simple to explain and do, but not easy. Let's just make sure that's clear. I always say that simple and easy are not the same thing. This is deep work, uh, Mm -hmm. deep work of being human here. So another one that I like to talk to people that seems to really resonate is this idea of this equation, which is S equals P times R. And It's suffering equals pain times resistance. And it's really this sense that there's pain in everyone's life. The P is unchangeable, but that the S, the suffering can be transmuted. And the pain is amplified by that R, by that resistance to the pain. It's that sort of sense of, I wish this weren't happening. I don't want this. Get this away from me. This doesn't feel fair, you know, all of that. Now, I'm not saying that's not normal. And I think there's a, there's a way that there, it's unavoidable. What I'm saying is that, can you, again, pay attention and just become more aware of where you may be adding that R in your life? I mean, I can tell you I add it all the time. I can tell you that people, we all add it in small ways, like traffic, you know, like, why is there so much traffic? Like, because you're actually part of the traffic, you're in the car. Like, right. <laughs> like, but anyway, to why do I have this diagnosis? To why can I, why am I suffering in this way? Why am I working so hard? Why don't I have the privileges someone else has? It doesn't mean the questions aren't important. It means, can you look and see where you may be adding the R in ways that you could ease on? So, Uh, An example I give in my book is actually when my husband, who's still managing some very deep chronic shoulder pain, you know, he was sort of recounting to me on a walk, his fear and his deep sadness. This, what if this doesn't go away? Zubin's getting heavier. How are we going to move him? How am I going to be a caregiver? How is this going to work? I don't know if this is, I'm only getting older. It kept going on and on and on. And all of this resistance was fear to things that haven't even happened. I'm not saying they're not real, but they are and are. So I asked him, I said, what if, what if just right now there was nothing to fix? What's left? And he said, first, he's like, that sounds so stupid. Then I said, no, try it for me. What if there's nothing to fix? There was nothing to solve about Zubin or the caregiving. And he took some deep breaths and he said, then there's just my shoulder pain. And I said, okay, and now what? Some more deep breaths. And then he sort of like easily flew into a plan of medical, what he's going to do for his pain. It all of a sudden was 
it's not it's not surprise to me. He got more clarity in his prefrontal cortex, his body ease, his vagus nerve turned on. And he then, oh, you know, I haven't done acupuncture in a long time. You know, I haven't really been doing my stretches. Now, I'm not saying it's his fault. It's not. But he couldn't even see what he could do to help himself because he was stuck in the R of the fear, the fear, the fear. So all I'm asking is if anyone listening can just say, take a few breaths. Where am I adding some R in this? If it's feeling overwhelming, like that example you gave, if it's feeling like the suffering is so overpowering, where can you take out some R? Just Mm -hmm. notice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so what you're in your example or what you were saying to Steve is that if you had nothing to fix right now, what's left? And it's just the pain, which you said pain is always it's inevitable. We all are going to experience pain. But by taking away some resistance, he decreased the suffering. Yes. Right. Exactly. Because the suffering was far greater than his physical pain. It was his an emotional and spiritual pain about, I will not be able to provide for my son. Right. Well, and so this is an interesting thing to think about because I think, again, you know, and I've been having this conversation in, in multiple podcast episodes where it's like really important to, to define words because so many words in our language and the English language and also in Western wellness and healthcare, they are equated. So pain and suffering are often thought of as the same thing. But what you're saying is that they're not the same thing. They're not at all, right? The pain. So how how do you, and this might be something that's important for listeners to understand is because if we all are equating pain and suffering as the same, it's so hard to understand. Well, I don't get it. How, how will my suffering decrease my pain? You know, if they're equating it with pain, how do you delineate those two? Pain is what we are either given experience or are faced with in our life. Suffering is how heavily it sits in us. That is the simplest way I can say it, you know? So suffering is also not our fault because much of our pain is so heavy that it sits so deeply in us. And it is necessary for us to understand how to transmute it. It is necessary for us to sit in there and see how heavy it is. Because all those layers of resistance that create the suffering are actually part of the magic. But that's a secret I can't give out yet because people need to not think that it's that easy. No, I'm just kidding. But I really want people to understand that sometimes there's a point in the book where I even say this, that sometimes the joy is actually in the seeking, because once we can see the resistance, we understand our suffering far, far, far better. Yeah. And, you know, this is bringing up for me what I have been experiencing the past couple of days. You know, I'm going to be having cycle three tomorrow, my chemotherapy, um, and it just feels like it's such a long road. but after the second cycle, which was two weeks ago, I have been so incredibly tired, like to the point where I'm just wiped out. And I've been feeling this way up until today, Tuesday, which is day 14, right? Day one starts again tomorrow. And I yesterday was having so much suffering, (laughs) so much anxiety, because I wasn't feeling so well. You know, the pain was really the exhaustion, the fear, you know, the, the, a little bit of nausea and some other headaches, things like that, that I were, was feeling from the, the chemotherapy. 
But what was really, really hard for me was the suffering that I was, I'm thinking about this as you're saying this, I had so much suffering around it because there was so much anxiety about the heaviness of going into the next treatment, feeling this tired and oh my gosh, how am I going to get through the next cycle and how will I get through the next cycle after that? And will my nausea be worse or my, I just started spinning. And that to me is what you're talking about. And it was so interesting. And this again is not, I swear to all of you who are listening, this is not a plug for Thin Meat's book, but in a way it is. I picked <laughs> up your because <laughs> I picked up your book to prepare for our conversation today. And I started reading just the first couple of chapters. And all of a sudden, I was reminded of these concepts. And I just was able to ask myself those questions, you know, because I got to that part in the book of if you didn't have to fix it, what would be left? And I and I just was breathing through it and I was like, oh, yeah. And, and you know, I've heard your TED talk and I've heard this this equation because you, you've worked with it for so many years with your patients and developed it and really tested it and, and lived it. And so I understand this equation. I've, I've talked about it on a, a previous podcast that we did, which we'll link in the show notes too. But of course, I forgot about it. And so to be reminded of that in this moment, I was just like, oh, this makes sense. So it was a very real experience for me, what you were just talking about, of really thinking about that, that equation of pain equals suffering times resistance, of just removing some of that resistance and then seeing that my suffering went down. And then all was left was, yeah, I'm a little nauseous. I have a little bit of a headache. I'm fatigued. Okay, I can deal with that. Yeah. and. You said pain equals suffering times resistance, but I know you meant suffering equals pain times resistance. Yeah, yeah, that's why I meant that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I think that's so powerful because what you're really acknowledging is the pain you are feeling is so big, right? I would never discount that for anyone. So what we're saying is that we can't always solve the pain in any one moment, but we can ease the suffering. And that's what you did in that moment. I think what's so powerful too is that in what I, w- what I was talking about, if people really explore that resistance, we get so much more healing too, is that, you know, when I, when I hear what you're saying, I see that that resistance you had which by the way, as you know, but I want the listeners to know is so normal, expected, all of that. But it's also reflective of your deep love for your family, your work, your life. You just want to get back to your life and you're tired of this thing intervening in it, right? And so, I mean, we're doing a little workshopping here in real time. But what I will tell people is that I, w- I hope people can just see how sacred this is because now that we can understand that resistance, holy cow, listen to that. You actually are connecting to your deep love and gratitude for your life. Wow. You know, there's the joy piece that's holding the pain because now you're able to see that this resistance is just a reflection of what you feel about your life, which is so beautiful. That doesn't make the pain solvable tomorrow. I get that. I'd, and, and if I could solve pain, I'd be far, you know, I'd be, yeah, I would have been way richer and more famous by now. But, but I think what people can understand from that is how you actually eased your suffering. It was really quite beautiful, yeah. that story. 
Yeah, no, and I did say the equation backwards. But yeah, so, you know, as I just removed that resistance or even named it, like back to the first exercise that you said, you know, just identified it, brought it into the light, you know, acknowledged it. My pain felt less. My suffering was less. That, you know, and the pain may have been still there. It wasn't amplified as much, but definitely the suffering went down, which I think also probably made the pain feel less, you know, just the, the, the emotional feeling that I was having that was going along with it. So it's a, it's a really powerful exercise, I think, that I was doing right in real time. So I'm glad you brought that one up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a beautiful story. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you really want, you know, based on what we've talked about, that you would really love to share with the listeners before we end our time? Yeah, I mean, gosh, so much. I know. But what I would say is that this really is a concept, this joy is my justice, is really a concept that I never understood till I started the seeking that it would be related to all my justice work in the world that, you know, I talk about in the book, but I really do the work I do because I have never felt safe in my body. And I am now only starting to feel safe in my body. And I do the work I do to make safety more accessible to others so that I can be hopeful and know that safety is accessible to me. You know, that's sort of wounded healer that we, you know, often are. And what I didn't understand is that as deeply satisfying as my justice work in, is in the world and far, far more often is related to a solvable problem, not always, but often. This kind of justice work in my body, this kind of liberation work has made me understand that, as you said earlier in this episode, that the more liberated I can feel in my body, the more liberated I can be in this world. And I don't do this work actually the way that, you know, I don't believe in the self-care prophecy that we take care of ourselves to be better mothers or better doctors or wives. I really, I know that people say that. I'm sick of that prophecy. I actually think I take good care of myself because I deserve it, because I'm a sacred human being and I deserve to be tended to by myself and by others. But what I didn't know is that doing this kind of liberation work in my body would allow me to do more justice work in the world because I would feel more at ease, more safe, more loving, more connected. And so I really want people to understand that this is work we do inside of ourselves, but it starts to transmute and spread to everyone around us. I'm taking a breath and taking that all in. I don't even know what to say. Benmeeth, uh, thank you for this beautiful conversation. You know, uh, for the listeners, everything will be linked in the show notes, Benmeeth's website, her socials, where you can pre-order her book or actually by the time this episode comes out, yeah, order it today. Order yeah. the book. Yep. Yep. I hope that all of you will order her book and and really read her beautiful, beautiful writing and the depth of her experience and uh, expertise in this area and and also her lived experience with not only her own life, but her patients. It's it's really profound work. So then me, thank mm. you for doing this with me. I'm so honored to have you. This was a deep honor and I really want, I do not take lightly how sacred this was to be with you at such a sacred time in your life. Thank you. I love you. Love you. Thanks again for listening to The Healing Catalyst. If you love what you heard, please hit follow and pass it along to a friend. And if you're feeling really inspired, 
please rate and review so that others can find this podcast more easily. To learn more, head to avantikumarsingh.com. And to connect with me directly, find me on Instagram at avantikumarsingh. I'll be back next week and hope that you will be too. Until then, remember, with the right catalyst, you have the power to activate your own healing because healing starts within.